Good morning, everybody. Glad you're all here today. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you've got your Bible, uh, please open up to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Acts is in the New Testament, fifth book in the Bible of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark. The Apostle Paul's life had been turned upside down by Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth. At one point, Paul had been one of the most promising Jewish upcoming leaders in Jerusalem, and, and now um, things had changed for him. At one time, he had, had hated this new movement of Christians so much that he hunted them down, he had arrested them, he would watch them be killed. And then, as many of us know, one day he was walking on this road to a town called Damascus to find more Christians to arrest, when suddenly this light from heaven shone down and it dropped him to the ground. And a voice spoke from heaven, and it was Jesus Christ back from the dead. And Jesus commanded Paul to stop persecuting his followers. And instantly, Paul knew that Jesus really was God. And his life took a 180-degree turn. Instead of killing more Christians, Paul would now link arms with Jesus' followers, which would take a little while for them to believe that he was actually legit. They were kind of afraid of him. Understandably so. But he wanted to join arms with him and tell the whole world that Jesus is Lord and that everybody who trusts in him will be saved from sin. And we've read about many of the cities that Paul visited to tell people about Jesus. A few weeks ago, we we read how Paul reasoned with the Jews in Thessalonica, and he proved to them from their own scriptures that Jesus was the Savior that they'd been waiting for. And then last week, uh, we read how Paul preached the gospel to another group of Jews in a town called Berea. And these Bereans knew the scriptures very well, and they checked it thoroughly to see if what Paul was telling them was true. And seeing from scripture that, that Jesus really was the Messiah, says many of those people put their faith in Jesus and began to follow him. But at the same time, many people were offended by Paul's message, and Paul had to flee from the city of Berea quickly before they could kill him. And so he boarded a ship that sailed him a long ways away, 250 miles south to the city of Athens, Greece. And when he got there, he had to wait for his ministry partners to catch up with him because they had not boarded the ship with him. And so Paul spent several days walking around the streets of Athens. I'm curious, has anybody here been to Athens? If you have, raise your hand. Okay, we've got a few hands. Okay, thank you guys, thank you. Well, you know, at one time, Athens had been one of the most glorious cities in the world. Uh, 500 years before Paul visited, Athens led the world in sculpture, in speech, in literature, and in philosophy. Uh, The philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had all lived in Athens. And so if you were a philosopher in Paul's time and you lived in Athens, you were kind of, you know, you were the top school in the state. You took pride in in being from Athens and who your forefathers in philosophy were. Athens was home to dozens and dozens of these beautiful, breathtaking temples all over the place to these Greek gods. And Athens had the most amazing amphitheaters. 
and concert venues where the Athenian citizens, they saw the best plays and they saw the most talented musicians play. And Athens had huge stadiums, just like we have stadiums in some of our cities today where thousands of people would gather to watch sporting events. In short, Athens was basically the best at everything related to the arts. It had the best philosophers, the smartest people, the best temples, the best sculptures, the best paintings, the best craftsmanship, the best music. It was all in Athens, or at least it had been at one time. By the time Paul got there, the city was only about 10 to 12,000 people because the new city on the rise was Corinth, and that was the cool new place to be. But recently, a video game company digitally rebuilt the ancient city of Athens in really an incredible way uh, so that people can go play in ancient Athens. And I want to show you a short video clip that shows what someone like Paul would have seen when arriving in Athens by ship. Now look in the Bible with me. Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So as Paul walked around Athens and he looked at all this glorious statues of the gods and all that beautiful artwork and all these beautiful breathtaking temples, his heart broke. He was greatly saddened and distressed by what he saw. He was looking at one of the most stunning cities in the history of the world and its citizens had filled it with idols or false gods. Statues and paintings and pictures and mosaics and etchings everywhere of gods and creatures and myths created in the minds of men and worshipped wholeheartedly by all of its citizens. Sometimes idols take the form of carvings and statues and sometimes idols are less obvious to the eye. Pastor Tony Merida defines an idol as anything to which we turn when we need something that only Jesus can give. Anything to which we turn when we need something that only Jesus can give. We and our neighbors in our community are looking for peace. Internally, we're looking for happiness and joy. We're looking for forgiveness we're looking for freedom, we're looking for purpose in our lives, we're looking for glory. And we can only find those things to the max in quality and in quantity in the God of glory, Jesus Christ. But humanity has exchanged the true God for man-made idols, hoping that these idols will give us what we need. And so instead of looking to God for peace, we look to our bank accounts for peace. If we could just get that number up high enough, we'll have peace. If, instead of looking to God for pleasure, we look to pornography for pleasure. Instead of looking to God for help, we look to alcohol for help. Instead of looking to God for our value, we look to other people to tell us we're valuable. Instead of looking to God for truth, we look to culture for truth. 
Instead of looking to God to tell us how we should think about our sexuality, we look to the world and say, what do you think I should, how, do, how should I think about my sexuality? Instead of looking to God for safety, we look to our superstitions for safety. And even though most cities in America do not have statues of man-made gods like we've seen in Athens, even though our streets are not lined up in the same way with temples like this, we do have many temples on our streets that we walk by every day, whether that's in the real world or online. When we drive down the city streets of Western Washington, do our hearts ever break like Paul's heart broke? When we drive down the streets of our cities and see liquor stores on every block and bars and adult stores and adult clubs and casino after casino after casino and dark concert venues and abortion clinics and illegal massage parlors and drug houses and houses of worship where Christ is dishonored and stadium after stadium, do our hearts break like Paul's heart broke for the Athenians? Now obviously, it's not a sin to go into all of those places. I'm simply saying, those are some of the more obvious places that people physically go looking for internal peace. That's why you go there. I'm hoping that by going here, I will be happier when I, after I leave, right? People are looking for help. Our neighbors are in terrible situations in their lives, including those of us in here. We are looking for relief and hope. And often if people have any hope, it's likely in idols that they have made or that others have made, which they're clinging to, which are a temporary band-aid at best, and at worst, they're an eternal death sentence. May God give us hearts like Paul's heart, that we see in this verse, and like Jesus' heart. Because Paul's heart, his heart reflects Jesus' heart in this verse. Hearts that are filled both with a compassion for other idol worshipers, like we all were at one time. And at the same time, hearts that are filled with zeal to see God worshiped and enjoyed by all people. Because the idols that we worship not only leave us worse off than before, but also our idols rob God of the glory he deserves. Jesus Christ is the one true God, and only by knowing him personally will our souls find rest. So, so what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves worshiping idols instead of God? We've got to preach the good news of Jesus to ourselves. You've got to know the gospel and preach it to yourself. And by the strength of the Holy Spirit, turn or repent. We must turn away from idols and turn back to God, to Jesus Christ. We, we look to Jesus in faith and we ask him to give us forgiveness and cleansing once anew in our fellowship with him and to give us eternal lasting peace and lasting um, hope and the real help that we really need. And what should we do when we see other people worshiping idols instead of God? 
Well, hopefully God would fill us with compassion for them and we would latch on to that. We, we wanna compassionately tell them the good news of Jesus too. Sharing the good news of Jesus was Paul's response to his broken heart over the Athenians. Verse 16 says that Paul's spirit was provoked or distressed within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Then the next verse, verse 17 says, so, or therefore, or because of that, he shared the gospel with them. Verses 17 to 18 say, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he began by reasoning with the Athenians, both, it says, in private buildings like the the synagogue and in public areas like the marketplace or the agora, which we saw in that that uh, video. Again, the gospel of Jesus, we can reason with people using the gospel because it is a very reasonable, trustworthy, historically verifiable gospel. The world may think it is a foolish message, but it is not a message grounded in fiction. As Paul reasoned with the Athenians, Some philosophers, it says, took note of him and they began to converse with him. And very quickly, they they began to mock him and they called him a babbler, which was a derogatory term here. And they were basically were calling Paul this third-rate philosopher who had picked up various bits and pieces of philosophy from different places, who knows where, and now he was pawning them off as his own. They were very full of pride. You're not an Athenian. You don't know what you're talking about. But Paul continued to talk to them not about this God who you know, had this statue or a temple built for him in all these incredible ways, but this God who came and was hung on a cross and murdered and rose from the dead. That, that was the content of the gospel that he was sharing. And it was foolishness to many who heard him because they didn't want that God. They wanted the God of the statues and the God of the big temples and the God of the glory that they, that they could see. They wanted, they wanted that. But it's important for us to remember, I think this is a good thing. Basically, Paul, he walks into this, if you're gonna think about some of the most sophisticated intellectual places in our country or world where you would walk into, and you could try to impress them or boast with whatever you knew, Paul comes with a weak gospel of a God who was crucified and resurrected. That is the gospel, and we should not be ashamed of it, and we cannot be ashamed of it. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is wisdom to those who are being saved. That that is the truth. And so, in our schools, in our colleges, in our universities, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. It is... uh, as, as most of you, well, some of you remember that many of our oldest institutions in our country, the most esteemed institutions, were started by and for Bible-believing Christians. So yes, the gospel will be called irrational and foolish by many who do not believe it, but to those, who are being, those of us who are being saved, God says it is the wisdom of God. 
Verse 18 says that Paul was mocked here by these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So these were two different schools of philosophers, kind of rival schools. And each one kind of had their own different way of seeing the world, and they thought they were right, the other was wrong. It's going to help us briefly to talk about what each of these groups believed. The Epicureans believed that the chief ple- your, your chief end in life is to do whatever brings you pleasure. And so if it feels good, do it. That would be their motto. Uh, they wanted to live a life of total peace, total pleasure, without any pain, uh, without any fear of anything, the future, the present, people, whatever. And theologically, they believed in many gods, many Greek gods, but they believed that the gods were basically very distant from humans, disinterested in humans. They didn't really, why would they care about little human beings? Now, the Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, uh, they were mainly interested in rational thinking. Theologically, they were pantheists, which means that they believe that everything is God. Everything is God. So the, the Stoics believed that also everything that happens is predetermined by fate. And so people basically should not be emotional about anything, but be reasonable about everything and simply try to grin and bear whatever life brings because you can't make a difference anyway and you can't change any of it. For both the Epicureans and the Stoics, Paul's teaching was bizarre in many ways. Verses 19 to 21, look at them with me. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The Athenians were fascinated with Paul because his message was something new and foreign to them. Uh, So these philosophers, they brought Paul to the Areopagus which was the high court of Athens. It was made of the upper class citizens of Athens. And it was essentially the Greek version of the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And, and even though Paul now was, was not legally on trial, the Areopagus is essentially putting him philosophically on trial. They're putting him and Jesus and the gospel on trial to, to see if it is philosophically logical. And... Um, Yeah, I guess just a, one quick thought on verse 21. It says they, they spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. We have to be very careful as Christians, and we're, or if you're not a Christian too, I would, I would tell you this. Many people are much more excited about the journey than the destination. And so for them, Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected is never enough. They're looking for something deeper. There's gotta be something more. What if I read the Bible and then I'm done with it? It's like you're not done with the Bible. You keep reading it. And so I would just say that, that, that often it's more exciting just and maybe progressive and cool just to say, I'm on a journey, I'm on a journey. And nobody wants to say they find the solution because that's not attractive. Jesus says, I am the solution. <laughs> so if you find me, don't look elsewhere. Stick with me. Now, um, Paul's about to share the gospel with this council And since, again, the the same gospel Paul preached is the gospel we preach today, the content does not change. It is about who Jesus is and what Jesus did to rescue sinners. That's at the very core message of the gospel. Uh, But that being said, even in this very esteemed, upper-class, intellectual 
Areopagus, um, he's going to present the same message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected, but he's going to do it differently than we've seen yet. And that's because Paul is speaking to a group of people here who have no concept of biblical truth. They're not familiar with the Bible. If, if they are, it's very little. And so this group of people, the way they looked at the world, the truths that they were brought up believing about the world are so completely different than Paul's previous audiences that before he tells them directly about Jesus and crucified and resurrected, he first has to build a biblical worldview for that to make sense, okay? Because if that is not in place, then Jesus isn't seen as much of a savior. A person's worldview is his or her fundamental beliefs and assumptions about reality. It's your fundamental beliefs and assumptions about reality. It's the way that you view your world. And because these citizens didn't grow up in this Judeo-Christian culture, many of their beliefs about reality were in direct conflict with Paul's beliefs about reality and, and the Bible. And so before he tells them about Jesus, he's going to do, uh, he's gonna build this Christian worldview for them. And basically in this speech, he does three main things. First, he's gonna find common ground between the Athenians' worldview and the biblical worldview. Because now he's had a few days to walk around Athens and study it a little bit and observe what does it worship, what does this culture value, and it helps him identify uh, areas of thought in which Athenians actually might agree with the biblical worldview. And the second thing he's gonna do is he's gonna explain the components, the core components of a Christian worldview, uh, many of which are in direct opposition to the Athenian worldview. So, it, so he's not gonna lie to them that there are important differences between their worldviews. And then third, Paul is gonna bring the conversation around to Jesus Christ dead and uh, risen again. And, and that faith, uh, faith is the way through which what Jesus did on the cross is uh, appropriated to us. His salvation is, is received through faith. And the reason he's gonna do this and bring it back to Jesus is because what a person believes about Jesus is ultimately the most important part of their existence. And that's the same thing that's true today. We can talk about all sorts of things about the Bible, all sorts of things about our jobs in the world and the economy and theology, but ultimately what's most important uh, for you, if, if you die today, is what do you believe about Jesus? That's the most important. So that's why he's gonna get there. And, and so anyways, he's gonna show them where they agree, where the worldviews agree, where the worldviews disagree, and then get to Jesus. So um, let's read Acts 17, 22 to 25. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, so he starts by saying that 
He can tell that this, so he's building some common ground. He can tell the Athenians are very interested in spiritual things, just like he is. That's a good thing. In fact, among all of these idols of the city he's, he's seen, he's, he notices this one altar. It could have been several altars to an unknown god. And the Athenians had altars to unknown gods as a safety precaution. Okay? They were afraid that if the gods were not properly worshipped, then the gods would curse their city. And so to prevent angering a god they didn't know about, the city would set up altars to unknown gods just to make sure all their bases are covered. Okay? Well, Paul uses that altar to this unknown god as a bridge to tell the Areopagus that he knows who that god is that they don't know. Okay? Just very similar to that, the Jesus film video we saw. Where you, where you go into different cultures, and many of them might have common ground with us, and, and we say, I know the, this God that you're looking for. That's what Paul's doing. He said, let me tell you about him. And then he begins explaining the biblical worldview uh, to them with some important points. First, Paul refers to God as the God. Okay, so in the biblical worldview, that means, according to the Bible, there is only one God. Okay? There are not many gods like the Areopagus believed, or many of them did. And this one God created the world and created everything in it. And Paul says that this one God is, his name, excuse me, is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Lord. It's his proper name. So that's why we call him the Lord Jesus. The Lord. So instead of there being a council of gods who oversee the heavens and the earth, Paul says there's one Lord over the heavens and the earth, and all of you and all of creation is accountable to the one God. And Paul says that this Lord of heaven and earth doesn't live in temples made by men, which is ironic, in a city full of temples. So unlike the Greek gods who, who received the offerings of people in the temples uh, uh, that, that were built for them, the Lord God cannot be contained by four walls. He's everywhere at once, and yet he is not everything at once, like the Stoics believed, the pantheists. You hear that? He's everywhere, but he's not everything. The Spirit of Jesus lives inside his people, but he is not their actual flesh and blood. God is separate from his creation. And then in verse 25, Paul says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. This means that God is entirely self-existing. This is one of his, well, there's, it's called an incommunicable attribute, meaning it is a way God is not like us. He is totally self-existing. He is uncreated. He is self-sustaining. He has no need for us. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's humbling. Yes, he graciously loves humanity, but he does not need us to exist. And that's the exact opposite of our need for him. That's what Paul says. We need God in order to exist. He is the one who gives all of us life, who gives us the breath in our lungs, who gives us everything we need to live on earth and to live after life on earth. Who is the one sustaining life now and forever? It's God. Now, let's keep going. Look at verses 26 to 29. Paul continues, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as, some, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So Paul says that the Lord made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And again, this was very different from Greek mythology, which taught that several gods created humans together. And Paul says that the Lord determined allotted time periods for people to live. The Lord determined the boundaries of where they would live. And in verse 27, Paul explains what God created people to do. To seek God. To know God personally. God is a personal God. He is involved in our lives. And he created us to know him personally. This is a very different idea than the Epicureans believed, that the gods are disinterested in humans. And it's also very different than the Stoics believe that God is this impersonal force that everything is composed of. Paul is showing them a God who's very different. And so God is a personal God, but because humanity rebelled against him, he banished us from his presence. And so now we are blinded by sin, set apart from God. The best we can do now perhaps is to feel our way around spiritually with the hope of finding him. And even though we can't see him with our eyes, he is not far from each one of us, whether we believe in him or not. And then in verse 28, Paul establishes some more common ground with the Athenians, right? And he shows them that their own Greek poets have written some statements that align with the truth of the Bible. It says, for in him we live and have, uh, so for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, quote. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, uh, briefly on that point, all truth is God's truth, okay? So everything that is true in the world is God's truth, but that doesn't mean that everything that claims to be true is true. That's the distinction, okay? Because I've heard some people argue from, you know, different philosophies and religions, well, all truth is God's truth, therefore everything must be true. All beliefs, no, no, no. Everything that's true is going to align with God because God is truth. That doesn't mean anything that says I want this to be true is true, okay? Um, but Paul says it's very important for us as humans to remember that we are God's offspring and not the other way around. See, God is not our offspring. And that's crucially important because many people want to create in their minds a God of their liking and their choosing. They don't want to do the work of finding the true God. They just want to say, well, I believe this is what God is like. And I wouldn't want to worship a God who wasn't like this. And I couldn't worship a God who wasn't like this. It's like, sorry, bud. You need to know truth. 
You need to know, I'm, I mean, sorry, it's like we can go all day. It's like my concept of what I want in a God today might be different today than it, it will be tomorrow if I'm just doing it on however I feel. What we need to know is what is truth? What is God actually like, whether we like it or not? And Paul says that they want to worship a God of their making instead of worshiping the true God who made them. And he tells the Areopagus that God is not an image formed by the art and imagination of man in our heads. God is not like the gold or silver or stone, which is what the nicest Greek statues and temples were made of. Paul's telling them the true God of the universe is not like the gods you have created and which you have worshipped instead of the true God. And then he says in verses 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul says that the times of ignorance God overlooked. This means that God has graciously not destroyed all the peoples of the earth for their idolatry. He has patiently stood by as they worship demonic forces and idols that they created in the imaginations of their mind according to their liking. Paul says that now, though, God commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. That's the command of God. To stop thinking about God and reality wrongly and to start thinking about God and reality rightly the way that he says So instead of following the old path that led us to destruction and death and to whatever our minds and hearts felt like we wanted, we turn around to God if we want peace and true life. And the reason God, think about this, the reason God calls all people to repent is what? What is the reason Paul gives? Because, you're right, because you're gonna be judged by him. And when God punishes them, They will either be eternally rewarded or, uh, when he judges them, they will either be eternally rewarded or eternally punished. This idea of a final judgment was foreign to the Greeks. They didn't believe this. They they believed more that history was cyclical. That you just kept going and going. Not that there's a point where it ends as we know it. But think about this. The very fact that God commands us to repent is proof that he loves us and wants good for us. He commands us to repent so that we won't be condemned. If he didn't care, he wouldn't tell us to repent. But Paul says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So there's a judgment day coming. It's already fixed. That day is established. It's not changing based on what you and I do. It's not like there's a day coming where God will decide, I think this is a good day to come back, right? God has already fixed a day in space-time history when he will come back. And it could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be a year from now. We don't know. And we don't need to know the exact day. God's point for you is that you should live like today is the day he's coming back. That's the point. He commands you to repent and turn to him today and start following him. Come into his salvation and his love and life today. And it's now at this point that Paul makes his way to Jesus. 
He says that God will judge the world with perfect righteousness and justice. And how's he gonna do that? By a man whom he has appointed. Okay, now we know the truth that, there, that, that this man is not a mere man, but is God the Son, the God-man Jesus. But the Athenians didn't know that. Paul hasn't explained the gospel in detail to them at that, that far yet. But he tells them that this man will surely judge the world because God the Father raised him from the dead. So that's the reason we know that there's judgment coming, because God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And then verses 32 to 34 say, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So when the Greeks heard about the resurrection of Jesus, they thought, they thought Paul was nuts, pretty much, okay? Because many of the ancient philosophies, and many of our philosophies today, believe that the flesh is corrupt and evil. The goal of life is to be freed from this thing, not to die and then have your flesh come back to life. That would be failure. It, it didn't make sense to them, this idea of a resurrection. Of course, and the idea of Christian resurrection is that Christians are resurrected to have a glorious body like Jesus' body, a perfected body. But it says some of the members of the Areopagus mocked Paul and others were willing to, to hear him out and to talk another time about it, but they were finished with Paul at this point, and for whatever reason, we don't know exactly, but Paul was finished with them. And it's very possible that Paul's speech was, was longer, right? It probably was than what's contained in these verses, because apparently speeches used to be hours long in, at the Areopagus. These are probably the bullet points of Paul's speech. But it appears here that Paul didn't finish his speech and actually get to explain that salvation happens through faith in Jesus, according to the text, anyway. Which is probably why verse 34 says that some men joined him and then believed. They didn't put their faith in Jesus and then join him. They, they probably joined him in the sense of following him around and asking him more questions about Jesus, and then when they heard the gospel, clearly they believed and trusted in Jesus. And verse 34 says that one of the men who trusted in Christ was a, a man named Dionysius, who was one of the members of the Areopagus, and then also a notable woman named Damaris, trusted in the Lord along with several others. So let's bring this home a little bit. <clears throat> D.A. Carson uh, describes Paul's speech here as worldview evangelism. Because in order for the members of the Areopagus to see Jesus as the solution to their problems, they first needed to understand what the problem of humanity is according to the biblical worldview. So before talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for sinners, see everything that Paul does here. He says there's one God, not many gods. Uh, God's the creator. He created the world and people. We are created in his image. He was not created in our image. God is existing, and he's self-existing, and he doesn't need any of us. Yet he is personally involved with all the details of our lives. He wants us to know him. He created us to have a relationship with him. Because of sin, however, we're in spiritual darkness. We cannot find him. We need him to find us. And while we have been worshiping idols, God has patiently endured our spiritual ignorance 
And now he tells us to repent, to turn to him in faith because he's gonna judge us. So Paul talked about all these things before he got to Jesus because he wanted them to see how Jesus is our savior from God's judgment. Jesus was judged and condemned already so that whoever trusts in him doesn't have to fear that future day. Doesn't have to be fearful of being condemned by God now and forever. And that's the rest of the good news that Paul was able to share with those who joined him after he left the Areopagus. And much of his approach here, his evangelistic uh, worldview approach, transfers over to the way that we can share the gospel in our country. Until about 40 years ago, you could assume that the majority of Christians in our country were raised with a Judeo-Christian worldview. You could assume that they were somewhat familiar with the Bible. But we cannot assume that anymore. That's why, I, mean, I hope you know when I preach, I do not assume everyone, that's, I do not assume everyone here is a Christian. I do not assume you know anything about the Bible. That's why we have to be very clear and just say, let's, let's preach to Christians and non-Christians, right? Wherever we are in our spiritual journey. Um, just like Paul had to establish the biz- biblical worldview before he talked to the Athenian citizens, we also might need to have conversations with our non-believing friends about worldview issues before they see Jesus as their need, as their needed savior. So, so honestly, I think, honestly, much of what Paul shared with Areopagus would be eye-opening for many of our non-believing neighbors. I mean, really, it might be eye-opening for our neighbors that the Bible does not argue for the existence of God. The Bible assumes the existence of God. In the first verse of the Bible, he is the subject. He is the one around whom all of our lives and the universe revolves. We are not the subject. He is the subject. And then before talking about the truth claims that Jesus made, we might have to have discussions with people that there is such a thing as truth. <laughs> there is such a thing as right and wrong And Jesus talks about it very objectively, meaning this is truth, period. Not this is truth if you want it to be true. He says this is the truth. (laughs) How grateful we we should be that we have a God who says, I'm not playing games with you, I'm gonna tell you the truth. We might need to talk with our non-believing friends about what it means that God is both loving and just. Right, because many people, who doesn't want to believe in a God who is loving, right? That's easy, like, of course, I want a God who loves me, makes much of me. But we need to know, yeah, God is gracious and he is compassionate and he is also very good, he's very righteous. He does not let evil go on forever and so he punishes wickedness with his wrath. So yeah, God loves everybody in one sense, he does. But he does not accept everybody. Hear that? That's the big difference we need to make. He does love everybody. He does not accept everybody. God will not accept those who choose their sin instead of him. You won't be accepted by God. That's why Jesus said, when you show up to me, I'll say, I never knew you, depart from me. 
Now, when you're in your conversations with people, it's, it's possible that you won't have to work through all these issues depending on how much the person you're talking to already has a biblical worldview. And that's why it's very important to have conversations with people, okay? And, and not just wait for, well, I gotta wait for that one right window of time when I can, that person's just ready and I'm gonna share Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Honestly, if we're gonna wait for that, it probably won't happen, okay? Um, there, there's not one right magical window of time to share that. What we should be doing is thinking about having spiritual conversations. Conversations about life and, th- and values and what matters most in our lives here and what's gonna affect us for eternity. Um, and doing this will show people we care. <laughs> we should, if we really love people, listen to them and talk to them and have more of a discussion versus I need to pin this person in a corner so that they can hear everything I believe and then I'm gonna ditch them, right? Um, Talking and listening to people helps us identify common ground with people like Paul did. It it helps us identify ways in which we don't see uh, the world the same way. And depending on the person you're talking to, you might get to the gospel of Jesus and of crucified and resurrected in five minutes, or it might be after the course of 50 conversations. But I would encourage you to keep praying for them and for yourself and for, the God, uh, for God the Holy Spirit to work through your conversations and through you, because ultimately that's who we need. <laughs> we can't save anybody, but God can. <laughs> and um, his command to repent and trust in him is just as important in this room this morning and in this town this morning, in this country and world, as it was that day that Paul stood before the Areopagus. God says, put your faith in me, Jesus, because I'm risen from the dead. That's why, that's the reason he gives. I am not dead, I am alive, and I'm the good judge. He's gonna return to earth on a day that's already been determined. He will judge all humanity the living and the dead. Romans 3, 23 to 26 says this, for all have sinned, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? By faith, not works, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's the great thing, man. If you trust in Jesus, he's not just your judge, he's the one who's made you just already. That's what it means he's the justifier. He's made you not guilty. He's taken away your sin. Uh, he's imputed to you his righteousness. He, it, so that in the Father's eyes, you have become the righteousness of Christ through faith. Um, and to celebrate, man, that's, that's what we're celebrating. This is good news. To celebrate this redemption that, that, that is in Christ through faith by God's grace, that it's a gift to us. And then also to declare that Jesus is coming again, Jesus said something. This is, this is why I want you to take the Lord's Supper. 
I want you to know I'm, al- I'm coming back, I'm alive, and I'm coming back to have a feast with you at the end of the, at the, end of the world <laughs> when, when I come back. And so that is great news for all who trust in Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I would just, you don't need my words, you need God's word. And he's the one, he tells you repent today. Turn away from yourself and your old way of thinking and turn to Jesus. That is how you are going to be really satisfied here on earth and for all eternity and have all your sins paid for. So as the communion servers come forward, let's just, let's take a few minutes just for silent prayer. If there are sins in our life uh, which we're aware of that, that we need to confess to God because they're hindering our fellowship with him, confess those sins. And may it be uh, a time of thanking God for what he's done for you. Yes, you can worship God, please do that. And then also thank God because he loves you. (laughs) And he's given this salvation to you as a gift. And if you've never talked to the Lord and trusted in him and asked him to save you, this is the right time to do that. So let's bow our heads and, and have a few minutes of quiet. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. Thank you, Lord, that our time in confessing sin and knowing you and worshiping you is not limited to this time. We could do this 24-7, Lord. Help us, Lord, to take time to be with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So to explain the Lord's Supper briefly, at the, the last night, uh, the night before Jesus was crucified, <clears throat> as he was eating with the apostles, he, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is uh, my body symbolized, uh, it symbolizes our sin uh, that's gonna be put into his body and broken on our behalf. And then he took the cup and he, symbolized, uh, he said, this is, the, this is the blood of the new covenant in me. And this is the blood that forgives us, washes away our sin and reconciles us, brings us to God. And so in taking communion, we... We are remembering and believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, and we're also looking forward in hope to the fact that he is coming back again.